Whether it's a river runs through it or the story of Mary McLean, Fool's Crow, or A Man Called Horse, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott, and we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. going to talk about a couple of books uh, by women writers this, this episode. book from the past that we're going to talk about is Dorothy Johnson's The Hanging Tree. And the more recent novel is by Kate Haleva, Shaking Out the Dead. I always think of this book as, um, in terms of the storyline, it's not autobiographical at all. Right. But it's sort of psychologically autobiographical in terms of, these are things that I was thinking about for a very long time. Love, death, relationship, what to do when, um, when you are caught up in engagement with some, someone who isn't there. You right. know, whether it's because they're not present in their own life, they're not present in the relationship, they're dead, um, they're, you know, out to lunch, you know, like a husband with Alzheimer's. I mean, everybody in that book is, um, for a time at least, focused on somebody who quote-unquote isn't there what they want is from a person who isn't there in some way or another and then what does that mean when your relationship is with an absence more than anything i'm interested in talking about the the role of the women writer in the west during this period especially back when dorothy johnson was writing because um she was a contemporary of A.B. Guthrie's, right? I, I think so, and I just checked the date on The Hanging Tree. That's uh, 1957, but these stories date back to the 40s. 1942 oh, okay. was the first one. But I think you were telling me that she published her first story in 1935? Yeah. And then didn't get another story published for... Another 11 years, yeah. Which is interesting because in... She got four hundred dollars for that story in nineteen thirty five, which would be about ton. what, seven grand yeah. in today's money. Especially in the thirties. During the depression, my God. You know, the first Western writer to win in a major literary award was Willa Cather. For my Antonia? Yeah. Well no, actually it wasn't for that book. I, I don't remember which book it was, but so I've always kind of thought about um in a way it seems like the women writers were more courageous back then like they had more of a sense of adventure as far as writing outside of the stereotypes you think about willa cather she wrote a lot about alcoholism and domestic violence at a time when you know people weren't doing that and these stories kind of struck me the same way these stories from the hanging tree that's really true uh the first two writers that left to my mind when you were talking about that are uh, you know two other women writers from around the turn of the century, Kate Chopin, who wrote The Awakening. Mm. Um, I want to say that's 1899. But, you know, a shocking book about a woman's sexual and sociological awakening in 1899. Mm. It scandalized the critics, of course, and mm-hmm. the book was almost 
you know, completely forgotten to history. But then Montana's own Mary McLean. Mary McLean yeah, I knew uh, that's who same publisher. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, Herbert Stone. Two years later, um, and and it's interesting that both of those books he published because his wife came to him and said these are important books. You oh, really? Publish them. Wow. And Mary McLean, you know. Yeah. There's just nothing to compare to her. Right. Even today, I think. What was the original title that she wanted to for that book? I await the devil's coming. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you know, in in 1901, this 19 year old woman from Butte publishes a book in which she openly fantasizes about her female biology teacher. Mm-hmm. And, right, um, you know, talks about wanting to have an affair with the devil and yeah, really shocking stuff. But I think Dorothy Johnson, as you were observing, fits a lot more into the mold of the you know standard male writer. There's something muscular about her fiction which yeah. i think opens a whole, whole yeah, discussion right um she did have a very similar style to a lot of the men writers from that period but there's also like the story about the um the native americans are the stories that she wrote about them are way more um complex than a lot of the other writers from that period were were writing. I agree. It's not, you know, she avoids the noble savage myth. Yeah. I mean, they're real human beings in her book with, you know, motives and lives as complex as anybody else. But her views, I think, are amazingly progressive for that yeah. time period. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that, uh, you know, that's maybe a point that rankled critics or something. I don't know. Yeah. Talk about the... Um, exercise that you do with your your students about male and female writers because i think that's you know both i think both of these writers have been described as masculine both kate and dorothy johnson um which is interesting because i think they're i think they're just way more um interesting than that they're not just you know yeah that's a i'm fascinated by the whole women's writing versus men's writing and I've taught, you know, women's literature and, you know, a standard exercise that I have students do whenever I teach Montana literature or really any kind of literature is give them passages from various books and ask them to identify the author as either male or female. Mm-hmm. And no one can ever do it with any, you know, consistency. Right. Because I think it's really a myth that, mm-hmm. you know, books are either male or female, and the fact that so many novels by women were written under pen names that appear masculine, um, you know, George Sand and Mm -hmm. George Eliot, Mm -hmm. the first two that come to mind. Yep. But I really think it's, uh, you know, good writing is good writing. Exactly, yeah. And you're not going to be able to tell whether it was a man or a woman because, ideally, you should be able to inhabit the character so well that, yeah, no one could tell. And Jim Harrison comes to mind. You know, a, a writer who's been criticized as being, you know, macho. Mm-hmm. Even, but read Dalva. Yeah, and, you know. No, I think in his early work, especially, he was really good at writing from the female point of view. Dalva is a great book, and completely convincingly. And I think if you didn't know the author, you would be convinced. Similarly, with uh, Kate's book, Shaking Out the Dead. There were times when I was reading that book and she's, you know, writing the male character. I'm like, how do you know this stuff mm-hmm. so well? Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, I think both of them, Dorothy Johnson too, uh, managed to tell the story from the male point of view perfectly well, you know. So there are some similarities with these books as far as the themes go, um, especially the hanging tree, in particular the story there. And there's a the main character is a this um, doctor who shows up in this small town, and there's sort of a mystery mystery as far as his past goes. But um, he ends up falling in love with this woman who um, also ends up mysteriously in the town. But he can't uh, allow himself to get close to her. And uh, similarly, in Shaking Out the Dead, uh, although it's the woman character who's the main character, she's has a hard time letting herself fall in love with somebody um, for different reasons. But So they're both stories of unrequited love Yeah, with a lot of parallels. And it is interesting that the characters are switched. In one case, it's a man, and the other one, it's female. Mm-hmm. But they are both... You know, sets of characters that are mysterious, too. Yeah. It's like there's some element in the past that is making them the way they are. And The Hanging Tree, I love that, you know, the title becomes, or the title is taken from the the theme that the guy opens with. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be the town where I get, where I... Where I finally get hung, yeah. Right, because (laughs) he knows he has done this terrible thing and it's just a matter of time till it catches up to him. And I like the fact that she never really goes very deeply into what happened to him. Um, it's there, but it's not. She doesn't make that the focus of the story. It's really more about how um, he makes an effort to overcome that, or or he doesn't make an effort really. But um, right, and his role with the, I forget the name of his his uh, apprentice. But yeah, that I can't weird think of complex it relationship with him. And then when they discover this woman who's, I forget exactly how she ends up in the desert or in the... Well, her and her father were on their their way there and the stagecoach got Got robbed. So she was injured out in the middle of nowhere and they brought her to town. She was blinded by the um, sun. sun. And he's a doctor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he uses... Actually, The Apprentice has shot a guy... And so the doctor uses that against him because everybody... He's the only one that knows that this guy shot this guy, so he uses his... And he fixes the kid up, and he knows the kid can't pay, and Mm -hmm. so he holds that against him. But he almost does it as a joke. Like, (laughs) he's going to keep the kid in indentured servitude in perpetuity, or until the kid figures out that, you know, he... He's right. just blackmailing me. Yeah. I can leave whenever I want. Yeah. It's kind of funny the way he handles that. Also because the doctor does it almost as a kind of tutorial. Like he's trying to teach mm-hmm. the kid something. Yeah. About mistakes that he's made. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Also, a parallel in Kate's book is the the older woman. Mm. Is kind of a tutor to right Geneva, yeah Geneva and Tatum, yeah. So Geneva is a pretty interesting character. She has that scene in the early part of the book where she makes love to her husband, who's pretty incapacitated, and she actually gets in trouble with the right. <laughs> with She's the, uh, elder abuse, yeah, for, for uh, climbing on top of her husband, who's <laughs> non compos mentis in the 
in the old folks' home. Yeah. I have to say, um, I first became aware of this novel when I um, was part of a reading with with Kate. With Kate, mm-hmm. and she read that section of the book. Yeah. And, I mean, the crowd went crazy. It was yeah. so funny, and, and my wife bought a copy of the book, and um, I expected the book to be a comedy. Right. That's a very comedic scene. It's pretty funny, yeah. And that's really the only scene that's that funny mm-hmm. in the book. But it is, it's pretty interesting that it's comedy, but then it leads to this terrible... Yeah, and, and Geneva and Tatum both are um, just really struggling with the whole idea of what love means and um, why it is that they haven't been able to sort of give themselves more fully to um, love. And I and like sex the fact... Too, because sex, it's, too, yeah. It's, you know, that to me is an unusual thing for these uh, women characters to be uh, separating is love and sex. I mean, the cliche is, you know, men want sex, women want intimacy. But right. In this, in this book, they're struggling with the relationship between those two things. Yeah, which is a... Um, I love the fact that she blurs the lines there. The first time I became aware of this novel was when we read together at the altar, I think. Yeah. And the, the section of the book you read was really the only funny part out laugh out loud funny part of the book where you know the woman goes to see her alzheimer's stricken husband and um has relations with him <laughs> possibly unbeknownst to him <laughs> and that was a really funny episode that you read so that when i picked up the book i was expecting a lot of that and mm. it turned out that that was you know sort of an anomalous part of the book even though it it fit, you know, with your plot. Um, For me, Geneva, the character, Geneva, who's, uh, sixty-two, I, I believe. <clears throat> you know, to me, what was, um, you know, I would say not crafted, but it ends up just happening, and then you go with it, and that was interesting to me, just to engage in as a writer was. So even though you have these younger characters who are. Um, you know, beginning to become engaged in a personal sexual relationship. To me, the most sexual character in the book is the older character in terms of her interest in sex and how she thinks about it. And I kind of just enjoyed, you know, something in me enjoyed doing that, making the older, in some ways, the more, the more sexual. You know? Well, I mean, she's it, definitely in touch with, yeah. with, with all that. That's one of the things I really loved about the book was how well you nailed the characters who are in their 20s and negotiating all that weirdness of, (laughs) you know, the overwhelming sexual attraction to somebody, but also just picking people who are unavailable. Yeah. You know, emotionally or whatever. Um, And how all of that weird stickiness works. And then the older characters, you know, by the time they're in their 50s or 60s, it's like, they, you know, life is short. <laughs> no, so I, I really like that. But I'm curious what you were thinking putting that scene in there relative to all the other stuff. Which I mean, there's no other funny scenes like that in there that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, you know, I think that it's a lot of death and stuff. There is, but there's three sex scenes in that book, right? And I, you know, I think just, you know, as a writer, sometimes you just 
like writing certain things or doing certain things. And to me, um, I think for any writer, sex scenes are kind of challenging. Um, but that they're all, um, I don't know, none of them are like flowers and roses. No. You know? No, no, <laughs> There's no, something kind of off <laughs> about all of them. Um, just something about that appeals to me of, of it being not the cliched or stereotyped you know whether beautiful or passionate moment you know it, but it involves some weirdness sometimes oh i completely you know, agree and, and otherwise you know it just ends up either being porn or right laughable um it actually reminded me i hope this isn't an insult but i've always loved the way john updike handles sex scenes yeah um and i what you wrote sort of reminded me of some of the scenes in the rabbit books you know where it's sexy but it's also mm-hmm. introspective and mm-hmm. there's the weirdness going on and all that um so it is you know i guess the juxtaposition of the two great themes in literature sex and death yeah there you have in one it. book Tatum ends up having to take on her sister's child because her sister dies and the husband doesn't want to have anything to do with her. And and I really like the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of stories where um, an adult character gets stuck with a kid that they don't want and it ends up softening them and making them a whole different person. She really didn't go there with this story. No, not at all. And it was totally believable. Yeah. Because of that. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this book was the verisimilitude. Like how real people's responses to unrequited love or being unable to figure out how you feel about somebody or the, you know, the weirdness of dealing with a nine-year-old kid when you're in your 30s and mm-hmm. trying to sort all the stuff out. Right. And part of the complex relationship between Tatum and the, the little girl whose name is Rachel mm, right. is that that's her name, too. Tatum's real name is Rachel, yeah. And she's estranged from her mother and her sister, who's the mother of this right. Rachel. Um, so it's not just, you know, her niece. It's The kid is representative of all this weirdness from her past, too. Yeah. And uh, the characters were all, like the father... At first, you're thinking, man, what a jerk. But he ends up um, being a a lot more interesting than you expect. And even his response is is believable. Completely understandable, yeah. Imagine, you know, your wife dies and you you have a child with that person. Every time you look at him, they're going to remind you of Mm him. And he just has trouble dealing with it. And it's true. Part of the... Part of what makes a novel great is you start out hating that guy because mm-hmm. he's such a jerk. And then you realize that, you know, he, he does step up. Yeah, eventually he does. And the consequences of that are pretty pretty awful for Tatum. So that is the one moment where it seems like, oh, there's actually some uh, sense of connection for her with with Rachel, which is sad. It is sad, but part of what I loved about the book is that all these different threads come together in this tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it's all believable, and she avoids any kind of Hollywood ending. Yeah. But then after that, she, you know, fast forwards 20 years into the future in a totally believable way, not contrived Mm -hmm. at all. 
and has the older, you know, the girl who was nine years old is now in her 20s looking back. So the last line of the book really, I think, summarizes the prognosis for this child who's been through so much. The last line is, there is good. the ending at all but I do want to talk about the way the time structure works in the novel you know to the very last chapter and then suddenly you telescope to everything uh, and I think that's really hard to pull off without sounding like oh you're just summarizing everything after the fact can you talk about how that came about or how what was your thinking there with that last chapter of kind of going way forward in time. Going way forward in time, and then she looks back retrospectively, and it it has a great last line. I'm going to tear up just thinking about the last line. Yeah, I love the last line. I actually remember the day I thought of the last line. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was years before the book was done. There I was pacing in my studio, as I was wont to do, and it was like, oh, that's it. It's so good to have something to write towards, too. Um, you know, I thought doing that, though, with this book was important um, because in some ways it's about um, psycho-emotional trajectories and where they will take you. Um, so to then take that last chapter and blast forward um, 10 years, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, I think it, um, I just, like I say, I think it made sense. And Like, what, you know, where does that take a kid? No, you know, really, that's a, I think it did make sense. And where does it take Paris, given the choices he decided to make? And so I, I, I thought, since that's what the book was about, that, that kind of uh, acceleration forward in time was um, circular. Yeah, and then The Hanging Tree has a little more of a Hollywood ending. They're just about to hang <laughs> the doctor. And, um, yeah, I love the fact that um, the way that he ends up getting rescued is um, part of how he orchestrated um, this woman, being able to have this woman stay there. Right. Um, he's she thinks she's been discovering gold all this time, but he's actually been planting it. Right. <laughs> and that's what she uses to end up saving his life. So it was but it's an interesting cool that twist. she's the, I mean, she rescues him. She rescues him, yeah. It's, it's a great And so many twist. of these stories, um, she was a master of the ending. Yeah, really you know, good So ending. many of these short stories end with a, with a zinger that really makes you reflect on everything that came before and the meaning that you thought it had now is mm-hmm. cast in a different light. Yeah. So, yeah, you, I got, I just have to wonder, you know, why is it that, I mean, we could take the very simple view that Dorothy Johnson is um, pretty much, um, most people have no idea who she is now. Is it because she's a woman? I mean, how do we determine that it's pretty fascinating i think it is i would love to research it more um you know i think maybe people previous to our era knew her as well as ab guthrie Mm. but for some reason you know his legacy is much more prominent than yeah than hers even though i think she was more successful in hollywood Mm -hmm. and maybe who knows uh sold more stories i'm not sure she um 
wrote novels. Did she? I'm sure she must have. <clears throat> I remember when A Man Called Horace <coughs> came out. Um, I was in high school, I think, when that movie came out. And that was a fascinating <coughs> movie. Did you ever see that? Man, oh, yeah, with uh, Richard Harris. Richard Harris. Yeah. yeah. Great movie. It was. And isn't it based on uh, Liv Reaton Johnson, or am I confusing that with Jeremiah Johnson? Uh, yeah, that is Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah, I'm not sure who that was based on, or whether it was based on anybody, but yeah. I think that was probably one of her better stories. And, and The and Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, That's one of the a great fabulous story. Hollywood westerns. Yeah. I think another aspect of her life that may be impinged on all of this is that she's also, you know, associated with history and being a historian. Mm. And she worked for the Montana Historical right. Society and, you know, wrote uh, a yearly column called the Montana Remuda where she reviewed a bunch of books that had come out the previous year. And who um, took over for that? I'm, I'm actually... <laughs> Very humbled to say that I now write that article. Yeah, which is great. I love that. So we got we've got a uh, one of the themes that we've sort of explored off and on through this series is that um, we've got native Montanans and we've got transplants. And Dorothy Johnson was not born here, but she moved here as a very young child, so she was really a Montanan, a true Montanan. And Kate moved here later but i would never have known the difference you know yeah that's another it kind of goes like with the debate about women's versus men's right yeah you know whenever i teach montana literature i struggle with how do you define that mm-hmm. i mean if you live in new york city and write the great novel of the montana experience you know why shouldn't it be montana yeah. literature and this topic actually came up recently for me because i was writing an article for uh, montana magazine about the first novel Mm. you know, published in Montana or associated with Montana. In 1872, a Supreme Court justice named Decius Ward or Decius Ward uh, wrote a novel called Claire Lincoln. Mm. 1872. Mm. It's pretty early. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with Montana. Oh, really? So is it Montana literature? Right. Because a Montana guy wrote it? Exactly, yeah. Whereas another woman... Uh, Josephine White Bates, living in Butte in 1885, wrote a novel about Butte. Mm. You know, so I would say that's much more a candidate for the first the Montana first novel. The first Montana novel, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And by a woman. There you go. <laughs> so we're going to recommend both of these books very highly. We both enjoyed both of them. Dorothy Johnson's The Hanging Tree, which is a collection of amazing stories almost all set in Montana, and Shaking Out the Dead by Kate Kaleva. Next episode, we're going to talk about Ivan Doig's work song and Jamie Ford's love and other... Consolation prizes. There you go. Thanks for joining us with Breakfast in Montana. We'll see you next time. Got a lifetime filled with whiskey.